All right. So, so looking last week, signs and wonders are given usually to communicate. The, the kind of standard way of framing that would be to authenticate the speaker or what he speaks. So the messenger or the message. That, that's why a sign is given. Uh, typically, there are three areas we would talk about where you'd really see kind of an outflow of the miraculous, uh, the, the signs and wonders types of moments in all of human history. Can anyone think of when you would see, watching a survey of all of human history, when you'd see the signs and wonders happen? Anyone think about when you'd see, like, read the Bible. When? Okay, the Exodus. So, name the, the prominent figures. Who did them? Moses and, I'm going to add Joshua. I, I get Aaron, but I'm going to do generations. Moses and Joshua. Then, fast forward out of that kind of time period, when's the next time period we see a lot of signs and wonders? It's in the prophets. What prophets did the signs? Elijah and Elisha. So those are, those are a lot more, um, well, they're, they're, they're a lot less known. Uh, so when you think about Elijah and Elisha, you know, there's stories where, like, you know, there's an axe head that flies off into the water, and he makes it float and swim back to shore, you know. But you, you would probably remember more commonly when he's, uh, Elijah is on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal, or he, he has the drought for three years. He dries it up so that um, Ahab and Jezebel are, are coming economically and spiritually brought to a place of need for the Lord's rescue because they're Baal worshipers. Uh, Elijah's fed by crows. You know, he's ministered to by the widow of Zarephath where she has that oil that never runs out and the grain that never runs out while he's being fed in that time of drought. You remember some of those. I think it was Elisha's bones. Someone was thrown in who had died into his grave, and he came back to life. You know, so there's some of those things. I think when you look at what God is doing, there's one more era, probably the one you know the best. It would be Jesus and his apostles. If you think about those eras in terms of timelines, you know, so Moses, his miracles start in the latter part of his life. He was 80 when he led the Exodus, which is always, I mean, just fascinating to me to think of an 80-year-old man when you picture Moses, that's when he begins his Israelite ministry as leader. And, you know, then he dies at about 120. So he has 40 years of signs and wonders, and then Joshua inherits from him and probably has another at the most, if you do the math, uh, at the most 50 years after Elijah, or excuse me, after Moses. So there's like 90 years there. Then with Elijah and Elisha, no one knows exactly how to date the beginning of Elijah's ministry. But then Elisha seems to minister for about... Um, 50, 50 years after what may be the start of Elijah's ministry, which is, so it's a little harder to date that, but, you know, let's say 60 to 90 years total for them. And then if we say Jesus began at 30 years old, so right around AD 30, and he ministers during his short ministry, and then the apostles after him, ending with the apostle John, probably around 95 to 100 AD, that's about 70 years. And so all said and done, we're looking at about let's say 250 years of signs and wonders out of all of human history. It actually represents a fairly narrow portion. But when you read your Bible, you know, Moses and Joshua really cover the significant portions, especially on your yearly Bible plan where you quit by February. It's like you've read that section a lot. And then you look at the Gospels and all the way through the New Testament, your entire New Testament is only written during that window of time. And then you have these kind of like epics in the Old Testament, you know, the story of, of Elijah on Mount Carmel and him going up in this fiery chariot into heaven. And these things like stand out as such like watershed moments of Israelite history that they can like, they, they can make you think that the entire experience of God's people is always filled with these supernatural wonders and signs. But when you look at even the timeline, Abraham, through Jesus, is over 2,000 years, probably about 2,300 years or so. At 250 years of miracles, that's still only about 10% of the Bible's timeline. You know, from, from Abraham to, if you go back to Genesis, of course, and we, we're a little bit um, speculative, but 
you know, if you put the, the, the Garden of Eden 8,000 B.C., you know, you're, you're looking at 250 years being a very insignificant portion of time. So I say that because we want to focus on the New Testament era tonight, exactly what God is doing. I'm going to ask a couple questions here just to start out. Does the Holy Spirit baptism lead to speaking in tongues, prophecy, etc.? And maybe I could just frame this out a little bit for you. There are denominations that teach if you don't have Holy Spirit baptism and it's proof in tongues, you may not be saved. I think when you talk to individual people within those denominations, they, they usually will withdraw that kind of hard line claim. But there are denominations that teach basically you have to speak in tongues or you don't know Jesus. Um, so we want to evaluate that a little bit in terms of just, is, is that even biblically defendable uh, or defensible? And then what is the gift of tongues? Why do people speak in tongues? Like what, what really is going on with the gift of tongues? Uh, why did God give the spiritual gifts to the church, in the, or did he give the gifts in the same way that he gave them to Jesus and the apostles? I think this is the central claim, really, of the modern charismatic movement, is there's this idea that you read the New Testament, and we assume that we inherit so much of what we see in the New Testament that we should be experiencing life as they had it. You know, that our church and its experiences should be an echo with the same types of stuff happening within our church. Uh, so I, I think we need to evaluate the claim, because I think it's built on some foundations that, you know, if we just ask these questions, should we expect the miraculous New Testament gifts for today? Like, should we? Should we expect someone to be able to lay hands on someone and heal because they have the gift of healing? Um, and maybe just ask the question here, have some gifts cease. Now, I'm actually kind of backdooring a good question we should be asking this. And, and, and the assumption is, if, if we inherit the New Testament gifts, then what right do we have to say any of them have ceased? Like, is that a legitimate claim to say some of the New Testament gifts have ceased? And if it's a legitimate claim, then, then I think we can have at least a doorway to say, and these types of gifts would have ceased as well. I don't know if that makes sense, but if we're going to assume that we're inheriting Jesus and the apostles' kind of New Testament um, ministry of signs and wonders, then I would assume that none of the gifts have ceased. But if we can show from Scripture that some of the gifts have ceased, then I think we can make a good case that the types of gifts that ceased are, in fact, the revelatory gifts in the New Testament. Anyways, well, that'll probably be mostly next week by the time we get to that, that final question there. So... Hopefully that made sense to you. I wanted to ask those questions at the outset. By the way, these notes would be available if anyone really just wants to see what I have written. Um, I'm following actually the slides in my, my written notes, but I can print these out for anyone who really wants to see the scripture passages and go through a little more slowly than I'll go through tonight. Okay, so does Holy Spirit baptism lead to speaking in tongues? Your gut response is, yeah, well, that's because the church you're in, because that's what we teach. But some of you might be thinking experientially. I'm saved, I know I'm saved, and I didn't speak in tongues. So therefore, the answer must be no. Well, let me just tell you, you're a bad theologian if that's how you do theology. Because there's going to be a church across town who they speak in tongues, and their answer would be yes. And their proof would be the same foundation as yours, experience. So we want to be careful that we don't start building our theology on, this is how it happened to me. Why is that a bad theological foundation? Multiple reasons. Any, anyone you want to throw out there? Okay, your authority, I mean, like, this is kind of a, a basic principle, I think, of faithful, godly churches. The rule for faith and practice is what? The Word of God, the Bible. So if we're really going to live by that, that rule, that governing principle, that God's Word is what is our authority, when someone says, well, yeah, but that's not what happened to me, I don't want to be so callous to say, well, I just don't care. But my mind is thinking that. Because I'm not going to trump Scripture with, your experience. There's more to it than just submission to the Bible, though, and that is you and I are colossally bad interpreters, especially when it comes to life experience, and also when it comes to memory. And any good officer of the law knows when they take reports from people at a crime scene, they're going to get multiple different accounts that are radically different, especially if there's any agenda. <laughs> right? Like, it's their fault. Uh, it's his fault. No, no, no. It's their fault. And I was like, what, there are three people involved in a two-car accident? What is going on here? And it's just, 
memory's shaky, agendas are, are driving our interpretation of the facts. I don't know, have you ever had a memory and then you see it on video and it's like, man, that is not how I remember it? <laughs> our memories are very moldable and shaky. Do not trust your memory, but you're also a really bad interpreter of things you're involved in. You just, you don't know what God is doing. And you might have a, 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 an unknown um, interpretive scheme that forces you to think things that, or lead you to believe things that aren't actually valid biblically. Okay, so spirit baptism. What is going on with spirit baptism? So first, when you look in 1 Corinthians 12, this is one of the most um, clear examples, I think, in Scripture of really what it is. Um, For just as the body is one, and as many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Now, he's starting with this biological principle. He's not talking about the church per se. He's talking about just life. So we could say it this way. Just as the the human body is a singular unit, and it has many body parts, and all those parts, though many, are still a singular body, so it is with the body of Christ. He's not talking about the person of Christ. He's talking about the church now. So it is with the body of Christ. He drops off body there just because uh, Greek is notoriously efficient at dropping out things through ellipsis. Uh, then he says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves and free, we are all made to drink of one spirit. So he's punching two thoughts there. Unity with the word one and diversity with that many you'll see in verse 12. Okay, so now he, he focuses on in one spirit. There is one Holy Spirit. He is doing the work for everyone. And what is the work he does for everyone? What does he do? Well, I, I think literally it says we were all baptized. Gifts is a consequence of this. So we'll get to that in just a moment. So how many of you have been spirit baptized? All. Right? All are baptized. So, if we're going to ask the question, does spirit baptism lead to tongues? Then if you've all been spirit baptized, to answer that question, yes, we would all say what? You're going to speak in tongues. <laughs> like, you're going to. So, all believers are spirit baptized. Simple, simple point here. Okay, moving, moving forward then, what does spirit baptism do for you? Does it actually make you speak in tongues? says, for one spirit, we're all baptized. What's, what's the result of this baptism? We're all immersed by the Spirit into one body. Now, I think this has to mean not local body. I think it has to mean, like, universal body of Christ. And, and I think that this, then, is the basis by which the Holy Spirit gifts us. So, maybe I could... Um, Think of it this way, if, if I am going as like maybe a military commander, send someone on a mission, I'm going to give them the right equipment to accomplish the mission. You know, so if I'm sending them on a peace mission, I'll probably give them all sorts of like political research papers to know the, the, the players and the names and the faces of everyone they got to interact with so they can get a good peace dialogue, know the values and what every country wants so they know how to negotiate and give away certain things and get certain things in return. If I'm sending that same soldier on a secret mission to blow up some warehouse somewhere, I'm not going to worry that he has a photo of the president and a name and the name of his wife and kids so that he can be a good diplomat. I'm going to give him explosives and a strategic map of the area and a schematic of the warehouse. I'm going to give him what's needed for what he's going to do, right? So we look at the Holy Spirit, for in one spirit we're all baptized into one body. The claim that he's making here in 1 Corinthians uh, 12 is that the Spirit is doing this, putting us into the body, and then gifting us according to where he places us. Think of this biologically. I mean, how, how, how difficult would it be if your eyes were on the bottom of your feet? I mean, just think about placement. <laughs> like, I mean, just... It's a really challenging thing to have. If you're standing, you can't see anything. So in order to see, you've got to sit down. This just doesn't work real well. I'm really thankful that God put our eyes on our head and put them up high. I mean, even if you had eyes on your knees, 
just like, you're always having trouble seeing anything. Like, you just can't see over anyone. Just standing in a crowd is going to be miserable. It just, it, just think about where God puts and designs the body. He knows exactly what he's doing. And, and God does the same thing in the church. So, as we evaluate what's happening in spirit baptism, recognizing that, here's what's going on, every believer is baptized, and in that baptism, they're placed in a position and gifted according to the position in which they're placed. So I would assume that as we're thinking theologically, someone who's positioned by the Holy Spirit into the body and called to certain elements of ministry is gifted towards those elements, which is why I think all pastors should be gifted to teach. I think that's pretty clear in the New Testament because as a leader teacher, you teach. So the last thing you want is a guy who's called to teach who can't teach. I mean, have you ever heard anyone teach who's a really bad teacher? We probably all had one of those in high school or college. And these students who learn just read textbooks. And the other students just pass tests. But the teacher doesn't do much teaching. They don't deliver and communicate in a way that's understandable. Okay. As it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. So again, thinking through as we're like following the logic of 1 Corinthians 12 on spirit baptism, God places us in the body and then arranges the members in the body as he chooses. So the ministry of the spirit baptism is a positional basis for God's gifting. So if God calls you to be someone who serves with the strength he supplies according to 1 Peter 4, I assume that means he gives you energy and strength to do it. And I think there are people in, in the New Testament, like they have the gift of faith. And I assume that that means they have a rich prayer life and are confident in God's answers to prayer. And it leads them to make what might be, from a human perspective, risky claims and decisions because they have such confidence that God will carry them. Okay, so does Holy Spirit baptism lead to speaking in tongues? I don't know why the font is so small. Can you guys read that? If all were single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are a variety of services, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the same, excuse me, by the one Spirit. To another, working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, interpretation of tongues. Do all speak in tongues? No. Okay, so a theology that says the, the baptism of the Spirit leads to speaking in tongues as a kind of inevitable consequence, maybe I could say, or a necessary consequence, are, are frankly doing a disservice to 1 Corinthians 12. So not all believers have the same gift, period. Therefore, it's impossible that any single gift would be the basis for proof of spirit baptism or salvation. Tongues is not a gift for every Christian. There, there are, I had a friend, his name is Tim, uh, Tim Bonebright. And when he was going to school, he went to like an assembly of God school. Like in, in third grade, the teacher sat them down and began to instruct them how to speak in tongues. He just taught them. So he learned how to fake it. And he thought it was hilarious. <laughs> of course, you'd have to know Tim. But it's just like that. If it's a spiritual gift and you're teaching a whole bunch of unbelieving third graders how to do it, you're violating everything the New Testament is teaching us about spirit baptism and the spiritual gifts for the church. All right, before we move to our next major uh, theological concern, any questions? Yes. That's a good question. I don't, I don't know. I've not done a lot of reading with this, this type. It's less my concern and more my, my broad concern that we start building a theology that's correct. So I read more of the people who I think would be more reasonable, more biblical in their defense than that belief. So I was reading more like your Vineyard guys, Wayne Grudem, those types of guys, Sam Storms. 
these are theological men who are educated. I think the assembly of God, I believe, comes from more of a, um, a simple approach of reading the book of Acts carelessly rather than a real thoughtful, rigorous theology. And fair or not, it's probably deserved that, historically speaking, the assemblies of God type of approach is, is um, underrepresented with seminary education and underrepresented in actual theological rigor. So like in the theological world, almost no one respects people of that position. Not that they're not godly people, but like in terms of thoughtful analysis and debate, there's very few people who come from that worldview, who are, who are in those um, deeply rigorous educational systems. Does that make sense? Very few theological, uh, matter of fact, I think Grooves is one of the few that it's open to that type of position of any of the high caliber theologies out there. So when I was in seminary, it's just like, no one bought into Assembly of God who had any type of deep education in general. And that's a stereotype, and I, I would just want to be careful that that's kind of the reputation. There are godly, thoughtful men who do think things like this, but I, I think generally the research isn't there. Lamar? Right, next 10. Right. Mm -hmm. Gift. Right. You're kind of stealing my thunder here, Lamar. No. <laughs> We're going to actually cover that exact passage in just a few minutes. So, in fact, what is, what is the gift of tongues? I think this is, like, it's one of those things we've lost clarity on a little bit. Let's look in Acts 2 quickly. It says that we're dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews. Let's just stop there. Who is the audience that's, that's part of the uh, original day of Pentecost? What nationality are they? They're Jews. But they're from all over the place. So when you read this like list of, of locations, it's Jews in these locations. And so you'll often, see, you'll often see Paul going to a synagogue. And if he doesn't go to a synagogue, like for instance in Philippi, where does he go? He does, well, there's no synagogue in Philippi. He goes to a river. And so that, 30 second lesson on synagogues. Synagogues start in, in the kind of the exilic period to to. Uh, minister to Jews who've been scattered through the captivity days. So you have these teaching centers that are trying to, to help people be faithful Jews in, in these cities. So you're going to have like big synagogues like in Alexandria where there's a huge numbers of Jews. And they're trying to maintain faithfulness as they're scattered and not living in Israel. By the time that Paul gets around, any small community that has faithful believers... They're gathering at the river if there's not 10 adult men. You had to have 10 adult men to have a synagogue. So whenever you see Paul go to a river, what you know is there's a very small contingent of people who would be considered God-fearers or believers because there's not enough to get 10 men. So uh, roughly speaking, you've got to assume the believing community, if it's, if it's under that, you have less than 10 families, right? So you're looking at something under probably 30 people. So when he goes to Philippi and there at the river and he ministers to Lydia, it's usually women because it doesn't take very many men, right, just 10, to start a synagogue. All right. That being the case, they're, they're, they're coming from all these locations to Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language, the them being the disciples. There's some 120 disciples who are part of the, those last um, days that were gathered together, getting ready for Pentecost here. In the, it kind of says the upper room, but there's clearly there's 120. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, 
belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. All right, so what is going on here? What's happening? Does it seem clear to you? What? Well, in fact, the amazement, look, they were amazed in, in verse 7. Are not these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? The, the text is really clear that they're hearing this in their own dialect, their own uh, foreign language. So, you, again, if you have Jewish people growing up in uh, Egypt, they would probably speak Egyptian. They come back to Jerusalem, and again, they're probably at least bilingual, if not trilingual, very commonly, that, that they would know Greek, they would know Egyptian, and they would probably also know Aramaic or Hebrew. And so they come back to Jerusalem, and rather than having to do the mental work of speaking in um, Hebrew that they don't speak very often, they're hearing the disciples speak in Egyptian. Like, when did they learn Egyptian? Why would they learn Egyptian? They don't go to Egypt. They're Galileans. They're hillbillies. They don't even have a high school degree. And that's what they'd be thinking. And you have 120 or so of these disciples variously being able to speak in tongues. And so there's this amazement. How do you explain verse 13? Okay, I think there's this, the, the, the unbeliever looks at that and is like, this can't be true. Not because they think it can't be true, but they don't want it to be true, Romans says. They suppress the truth. Now, you saw this with the miracles of Christ, the miracles of the apostles. It's not that people merely doubt. They don't want to believe. Okay? I think there's more going on there, though. Why would you think they're drunk? What? They're not hearing a language they understand. It would be my contention. Okay, so let's go, let, let's like, all of us imagine that we are living in Jerusalem. We speak, we speak Greek. We speak Aramaic. And maybe we know a little bit of Latin. And we're there. I have no idea what Parthians speak, or Medes, or Elamites, or those of Mesopotamia, or Cappadocia, or Pontus, or Asia or Phrygia, or Pamphylia, or Egypt. But can you imagine the babble you're hearing? You don't know it. You know Greek. You know Hebrew. You know Latin. So maybe every once in a while you hear a guy who's like, oh man, he's speaking Latin. He must be really educated. <laughs> like, but you're hearing a lot of nonsense because you're hearing like the United Nations. And you don't know those languages. It's not, I don't think, Luke is trying to record that they're speaking Babel, but they're speaking an untranslated language for a lot of people because there's a lot of foreign languages going on. Again, think like going to the United Nations and standing in the lobby. <laughs> like, they're not just babbling nonsense. They're speaking real languages. It's just nonsense to you because you don't know what they're saying. And it might be helpful just to think in terms of like timeline. Luke is writing after the book of 1 Corinthians. Luke, has, Luke knows the Corinthians. He knows the nonsense going on there. When he writes, if the Corinthians got it completely wrong, this would clarify it for them. Right? Like, like he, is, he, is, he is fully aware of the stuff going on in Corinth, and I would tell you that he is helping them understand what is actually supposed to be happening in the gift of tongues. All right. They could hear in their own, own tongue or native language. Therefore, this was a gift that initially brought the message of the mighty works of God to the people in normal human languages. The mockery, they're filled with new wine, probably indicates that it sounded like gibberish for those who did not know the foreign languages or doubted that actual languages were being spoken. So what is the gift of tongues? Uh, sorry, it's a total repeat of a slide. 1 Corinthians 14, 22. Thus tongues are a... For whom? Not for believers, but for unbelievers. Well, prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. So who is, who is the gift of tongues given for? 
Okay, this is taken out of Isaiah 28, 11, where Isaiah is prophesying about, I think it's the Assyrians coming in and taking captive Israel. And Israel should be aware that when they hear the foreign language of Assyria, that God is at work. It's really, it's really a prophecy of judgment. And, and here, Paul is picking that up and saying, when you hear the gift of tongues, you should hear Isaiah's prophecy that the foreign tongues are a sign that God is doing something. And generally speaking, it's a judgment on unbelieving Israel. Now, that being the case, where do you think Paul's point is to the Corinthians? Is this something you'd be excited to bring to church? Like, I'm going to speak the gift of tongues. After hearing the letter of Corinth, the letter to Corinth here, this is the, probably actually the second letter that Paul's written to them. After hearing that, you want to pull out the gift of tongues? Are you super proud of it? Or maybe like it to keep it in your back pocket. Only pull it out when it's really needed. Because it's a sign of God's judgment, and it's really not for the church. In particular, it's for whom? Really unbelieving Israel. Yes, Natalie? <coughs> no, um, not quite saying it that way, but I mean, I think, I think when you look at the book of Acts, very rarely is, in fact, I don't think ever, is tongues used by the evangelist except in Acts 2 where the disciples are preaching the mighty works of God. But normally, again, think about it being a sign. Who, who is signing it? The believer's expressing it, but who's actually standing behind that? God is, right? God is communicating to the listener. God is, God is using his servants in his church to tell the world something. Particularly, who is the world? Who's the audience? Unbelieving Israel. So in Acts 2, you see the most clear expression of, I think, that moment where in this uh, Pentecostal day, where all of these people from, from kind of this Jewish background that are loyal, like, Orthodox type of Jewish people, like, they're worshipers, they're coming to the temple from all over the world. They all come together. Many of them, like the Pharisees, are actually not believers, they're just devout in practice. And someone speaking in tongues, God is speaking more than just what's being said in the tongues. Right? The message being communicated, let's say, in a foreign language, is one thing. The mighty works of God are being communicated. What is being communicated by that person being able to speak it in a foreign language they have never learned? What's being communicated? I think at least two things that an, an onlooker should get away from that. What? Their authority? Because who's really speaking? God is speaking. And if you hear someone in a foreign language they've never learned say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you better listen up. And so to your question, Natalie, I think that's where the closest you would see where it uses a gift for evangelism. But it's also confirmation that what they're saying and that person themselves are an agent of God. And in this particular case, all of a sudden, God not speaking through the Hebrew tongue, but speaking to diverse nations rather than the Hebrew tongue, is, is, a, is a harbinger, a, a portent to what God is doing. What's he doing? The gospel is about to go from Jerusalem to Judea to the world. I mean, think about right now, like even Romans. What does he say that branch has been What? been broken off and we've been grafted in and he talks about that being a judgment for the jewish people right like god's severe judgment on them is by breaking off and grafting in the gentiles that's us and the gift of tongues is kind of like the signal like hey branch breaking time is coming and he's signaling that all right this sign to unbelieving Jewish crowds at Pentecost, this is uh, John MacArthur's theology, page 810, not only caught the people's attention, but also illustrated the reality that the gospel was to be preached throughout the entire world. Accordingly, the gift of tongues consisted of the supernatural ability for someone to speak fluently in a foreign language that a person had never before studied or spoken. 
It obviously, it was obviously a supernatural gift, especially useful for the cause of evangelism as unbelievers heard God's, God being praised in their own language. I think that's particularly again to the Acts account. Um, so it's a sign to unbelieving Israel of God's judgment. It's a sign, um, or as a sign, it's only use is to supernatural gifting that couldn't be imitated naturally. Does, does that make sense, that thought? If it's a sign whereby we all go, whoa, that's a God thing, then if third graders who aren't saved can do it, it's not a sign. Are, are you following the logic of that? Like, if it can be mimicked and reproduced by kids in a classroom across our country, it can be taught and instructed, it's not a supernatural gift. Okay. It is a meaningful language, not babble, since it required interpretation in 1 Corinthians. Now, here's what I do mean, and here's what I don't mean. I don't mean that it was always understandable. But I do mean that what was not understood was always propositional truth. Okay, so, so let me explain. If I spoke Russian, how many of you speak Russian? Okay, so I might, anyone? Okay, I just want to be, so I, I don't, I, I wish I did. Just, if you're like, like, oh man, I want to hear him speak Russian, no, keep hoping, it's not coming. Okay, so like if I spoke Russian, and I started preaching a sermon in Russian, content might be solid doctrinally, but it would be babble to you. But if there was someone here who spoke Russian, they would be able to say, no, that's truth, that he's speaking true sentences and statements about who God is in the scriptures. Okay, that would be the same thing with tongues. That's entirely different than me getting up and just babbling incoherently where there's no clear thinking that I'm communicating in any language. That's my point here, is that meaningful language was always driving the syllables. No matter what you say those syllables were representing in terms of languages, if there's an interpretation, you know something at its base is being said. You, you tracking with me? Okay. Um, as a gift given to the person for the body, it was to be for the common good. This is just kind of one of those basic thoughts about all spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are not so that you can feel good about yourself. Uh, they're not really for you to be a good parent. You know, it's like spiritual gifts are not for your home. I mean, not that, not, I mean, like, honestly, if you have a good teacher, hopefully they teach their children well, and they, sh they would use that in their home, but it's not for their home. What is the church, excuse me, what is the spiritual gift given for? <laughs> the church. I'd really be a bad poker player. I just tell you what I'm thinking. Um, so, a gift is given for the body. So, if tongues didn't have an ability to be expressed to the encouragement, the edification of believers, if it didn't confirm their faith, if it didn't help them to understand God's plan and progress of his plan, Paul's like, what are you doing? That's why he appeals to them so strongly in, in terms of saying tongues is for unbelievers. What's for believers? Prophecy. So, I, I think we really need to see those two elements together. That prophecy and tongues are, are kind of the same gift with different manifestations. So again, I, I would see someone who's speaking in tongues as essentially a prophet. So the discussion of 1 Corinthians 14 indicates it is like prophecy except that it requires interpretation. Therefore, we should see tongues as a subset or a special type of the prophetic gift. So like I think in like Venn diagram here, does anyone remember? probably having flashbacks of trauma right now from high school. You know, like you have a circle, and then you have like a, a circle that shows your relationship. I would put big circle here, small circle entirely encompassed. Big circle is prophecy, small circle is tongues. Okay, so like every tongue speaker in some sense was a prophet. But they were, their gift of prophecy is exercised by speaking in a foreign language that they had not studied or worked on in like an academic sense, that they've been supernaturally been gifted with the endowment to speak in a different language. All right, questions, thoughts, comments? Yes. No, no. So not necessarily. So the gift of tongues is a gift to speak in a foreign language. And it's, it's really interesting in 1 Corinthians, it seems to indicate you don't always know 
how to interpret exactly what you're saying. Which, I mean, that seems really bizarre to me, but it, like, or maybe Paul is just putting a limitation and saying there always has to be an external witness. You can't, like, self-authenticate. <laughs> so I speak Russian, and then I tell you what I said. Maybe he's saying, yeah, that doesn't work. You have to have a, a third party. I'm not sure which one it is. But there's always required to be an interpreter in Acts, or excuse me, in 1 Corinthians 14. Whereas in Acts 2, the reason you don't need an interpreter is because if I spoke Russian, there's some native Russians here. They're not really interpreting. They're just listening. <laughs> but, but they're able to understand the propositional truth. They don't need that, that, that go-between interpreter. But if I was to speak from the gift of tongues, Russian tonight, you all don't know what I'm saying unless we have an interpreter. Therefore, 1 Corinthians 14 would say, Mark, shut your mouth. You cannot speak unless there's an interpreter. If you also had a gift of tongues, and you spoke in Swahili. Anyone speak Swahili? Okay, good. Just, I just got to keep playing on the languages no one knows. I don't know Swahili. You don't know Russian. We're talking past each other. And your gift of tongues wouldn't necessarily mean you can understand Russian or that I can understand Swahili. It means we can speak our languages. It doesn't mean we have the gift of hearing or the gift of interpretation or understanding. Is that what you're asking too? Okay, I, <laughs> I, my, my understanding would be that it's part of the prophetic gift that they wouldn't be able to speak in a way that would displease the Lord. And I would say generally it probably seems to be limited to spiritual things. That they'd be speaking divine truth. They would not be talking about shopping lists or, you know, getting together to make Christmas cookies. They'd be talking about, again, it's a prophetic gift. And not every time the prophet speaks was he prophesying. I'm sure at some point, you know, some of these prophets are talking to their wife. It's not inspired revelation. And they're saying, hey, honey, can we get a hot meal tonight? I'm sick of fast food. You know, that, that's probably not inspired lingo. Okay. I've hit my time limit, so we're going to end there. And next week we'll look at what else? Spirit Baptism does. Okay. Any, any questions as we land the plane here? H.A.? Okay. Well, that was, that was a little bit ti timely question in the sense of it will take time. Uh, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14 quickly. So, so she was wanting to understand the relationship of tongues and prophecy. Let me catch up to where we're in the slides. Okay, so he, he starts in verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For the one who speaks in tongues speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him. Again, he's speaking to a church where there's a lack of interpretation going on. And so he's telling them, prophecy is what I would prefer you to do because who understands prophecy? Like, it would be like here, any, anyone who speaks the language of the church understands the prophetic word. But tongues, if I, again, going back to Russian, if I'm speaking Russian, how many of you guys are going to be encouraged? None. But if I'm speaking in tongues, it seems, again, it seems when someone's speaking in tongues, they, that's an authentication sign. They're speaking from God the, the words of God. Other, otherwise, we just lose the significance of what a sign is. Does that make sense? Is tracking with me? Okay. Um, for no one understands it, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. So again, he's uttering mysteries in the spirit. That's the tongues person. So what are they doing? What's a mystery? It's previously undisclosed divine revelation. That's by definition what a mystery is. So who else does that in languages that are known? Prophets do. And then you see that, so like in the verse on the screen that I show you, 1 Corinthians 14, 22, Thus, tongues are assigned for unbelievers, but, uh, excuse me, they're not assigned for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy is assigned for unbelievers. He seems to almost put an equal sign between them and saying, here's the singular difference. is because tongues are speaking an unknown language, they land in such a way illumination and the Spirit's conviction isn't needed. 
because the, the supernatural element is the language, and that's apparent to all. You know, like outsiders who aren't part of the family of faith. If I miraculously know like five languages, that's hard to refute. On the other hand, if I, I give a prophetic word like Jesus is coming back soon, or he's the Messiah, which would have been a New Testament kind of revelation, right? Or the church, and here's the church, and that's, that's part of the prophecy given, or the, the prophetic gift in the apostolic ministry. These are, these are new truths with profound meaning, but the believer has the Holy Spirit that illuminates and confirms that that's true and to be accepted. The unbeliever doesn't. That's why I think you'd see the big significance of the difference is, is the believer does not need the supernatural accompaniment of tongues, where the unbelieving Israelite does. So, I, th- I think if you read through chapter 14, H.A., you would see some of that kind of like almost equal sign, where he's saying these two gifts have some similar properties, but prophecy is by far superior because it's understandable. Tongues has a limitation on it in its supernatural delivery because it can't be understood unless you know it. And so you always have to have an interpreter, otherwise it's just kind of gobbledygook. Okay, any other questions? Lamar? Yeah, the mighty works of God. Um, I don't. I don't know that I would say praise. Let's look again what the text says. Verse thirteen. Oh, back a little more. How is it that we hear each in his own native language? It's not eight. 11, both Jews and proselytes, we hear them telling in our own languages the mighty works of God. Um, I would have to look at the Greek word for telling, but it sounds like they're proclaiming the mighty works of God. Mm Mm-hmm. Right? So, so your question on that is what? So, so let, me, let me suggest to you, I think, two or three reasons why I wouldn't think it's praising God. Um, despite what uh, J. Mac, who is almost inspired himself, says there. Um, so, so I think in this one, he, he's calling people to understand that gifts are given for the common good. He's already made that case in, in chapter 12. So gifts are given for the good of the church particularly, and, and I think this is where Natalie's question arises, it seems like tongues being a sign for unbelievers would have particular importance in helping people who are skeptics. I'm going to broaden that out. I think especially when you read Acts, that skeptic doesn't always mean unsaved because they use it to convince people that the church has gospel expansion to the Gentiles and they prove to the church who is skeptical that God is doing this, that in fact God is using tongues to prove it's prove his, his grace is spreading to them. Um, here, his whole point, I think, is actually a little more rhetorically um, subtle than you're, you're seeing, and that is he's saying something like, prophecy is understandable, and therefore, because people understand it, it's for people. When tongues is spoken and no one's there to understand it, the only one who understands it is God. I don't think his point is, is you're speaking for the benefit or the praise of God. I think his point is, is the only one who receives any type of benefit is God. That's not actually an advocation. It's actually a criticism. Because here's the divine purpose. Do this with gifts. Paul is saying, 
When you speak in tongues and there's no interpreter, you can't do that. At best, you only do this, and that's praise God, because only he knows what you're saying. Does, does that help? In Acts 2.8? Well, I, I will have to look at it more. I don't know. I don't understand what you're saying, so I'll have to look at that. All right, any other questions? Right. Any other questions? All right. So I, I mean, I'll have to do more research on what's happening in Chapter 14 for you, Lamar. But, um, again, if you read the whole context... His general indictment against the Corinthian church is that tongues should always have interpretation. They should always be understood. Or you keep your mouth shut. And, and it, it goes to the point, I think, that I'm saying in general tonight in that tongues is a real language spoken and understood and comprehended. It's not mere babble. Okay? So I'm not necessarily making the case that tongues have ceased yet. I'm making the case that let's, let's get it right. What is a tongue? What is speaking in tongues? Because I actually have a friend, he's a, he's a pastor down south. He was, his family was kind of charismatic. He said the thing that made them leave the church, because they were there in a charismatic church, was when a, a visiting evangelist had the whole church on their knees barking as a sign of the Spirit's work. And his dad said, we're out, we're done. And, and I, I think that's the type of nonsense at the least we all should recognize is so contrary to biblical faithfulness and the honor of God. Um, I think the idea for cessation is a little more, we need to be a little more cautious in our defense of it than mere, me merely saying tongues is um, for unbelievers. But I, I'll try to put together a clear argument for you in the next couple Sundays. Yeah. I'm happy to talk about it. I, I, I will, well, let me just ask you the question. What is the purpose of, of all spiritual gifts? So when we see the church normalizing the privatization of a gift, that, that's, that is not appropriate. It may not, like, again, I don't think it's inappropriate for me to use a gift of teaching to instruct my kids. But I think Paul's general point is, go use your spiritual gift at home to pray. I think his general point is, since no one can understand you at the church, go home. You saw how I said it last week. Go home, close your door. Go into your bedroom, close the door. Go into your closet, close the door. Now you can do it. That's not advocacy. So I think that person has been, get, like, in First Corinthians, has been, today? Let, let me be, yeah, so let me be really gracious. They're not speaking in biblical tongues. They probably have, let's assume they're a believer, that they have a heart of devotion and affection for the Lord, and they're probably, they're probably in their spirits expressing affection for the Lord and with their mouths saying nothing. So, I mean, like, I, I don't, I mean, I, I pray without saying a word all the time. I'm guessing at some point I could train my lips to flap and my mind to still think. I, I can barely walk and chew gum, so that would be a lot of work for me. But I, 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 the, that's one of my contentions here. I think historically we look at tongues, it's learned today. We look at the New Testament expression, it's a miraculous, supernatural thing that causes the world around to go, they're speaking our language, something amazing is happening, what does this mean? And other skeptics to say, it just must be in their drunk because they don't want to deal with what's really going on. You really put me on the spot. 
Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I, I, I think here's where I would be sympathetic. Our country is so um, fractured and poorly trained theologically. I mean, uh, my wife and I have had the experience, and I think anyone who's discipled anyone for any long period of time, you meet sweet brothers and sisters in Christ, and they say the dumbest things, and it's not their fault. We have, we have discipled people who've been saved for 10, 12 years, and it's like, so when did you get baptized? They're like, well, I never have. Like, well, why haven't you been baptized? Like, I didn't know I was supposed to. How did you not know you're supposed to? No one ever told me. You find out this person's been in a church for 12 years. They're a member. They're teaching Sunday school, and they're not baptized. And, like, my jaw is, like, on the floor thinking, what did this church do with this poor person who trusted Christ and wanted to be engaged in the body of Christ? They've never been told they're supposed to be baptized. I don't look at that person and think, oh, you unhealthy person. I'm angry at the church. So th- I, I, think, I think I'm sympathetic, but I, don't think, I, I still think at the same point in, time, point in time, it's like, well, you need to get baptized. <laughs> I don't be like, oh, well, don't worry about it then because you were never taught. I think I have a duty to instruct them, but I think we ought to be really gracious. Most people I know who are involved in charismatic stuff have, have, I think, a very warped view of what the Holy Spirit does in the New Testament. And so they're normalizing it for today. And if you look at it, the whole point of the New Testament is that it's abnormal. It's like God is shooting off fireworks to say, pay attention, pay attention. Here's a huge turn in the plan that was expected for Israel. Like the church, the Bible says, that was not revealed to other generations is this brand new organism that includes Gentiles, and the Jewish church struggled with it so that 17 years after Jesus dies, they're going, should we let them in? But we have, like, that's how hard it was for them to theologically, socially accept Gentiles. It was a, it was a, like, redemptive left turn that they didn't see coming. Well, how does God secure their faith that this is his plan without these miraculous signs and wonders proving that these men aren't just trying to grow their franchise and get money from Gentiles. You know, like, how do you prove the signs and wonders? All right, more next week. Thank you for the really good questions. I'm not always prepared for those questions because I don't think from, from the history, the theology that you guys come from. So don't feel bad asking questions that, that I'm not prepped for. I'll try to get back to, to the question about chapter 14 where uh, the, uh, Lamar asked about them praising God and, and try to give you a solid answer for that. I didn't I didn't think I would have to um, know the Greek words in Acts 2 and, and 1 Corinthians 14, so I'll, I'll dive in for you. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for our, our sweet church family. God, we thank you for answer to prayer. Um, I ask that you would comfort the Sinis uh, as they process through the, the passing of, of a dear loved one. Lord, thank you so much that Aaron and young and the family were able to go and visit to be able to see family lord that is an answer to prayer and it seems like in your just divine kindness um, you allowed the days to be numbered in such a way that um, there could be a sweet time together and we just thank and praise you for that but but now we ask that there would be the comfort that only you can give Uh, there's a reason you remind us you are the god of all comfort and so I ask that you would give a special comfort to the seniors. I ask especially for Al and Lucy and the health concerns there, the infection, the uh, need for chemo treatment. Lord, we ask that you would be kind. Strengthen the faith that they have, both Lucy and Al, that they would trust in you. Lord, guard us from ever hoping in medicine rather than in our Savior. Uh, you can bring healing, but Lord, sometimes in your kindness, As said before, our days are numbered, and you call us home. In either case, Lord, our security is that you are good. You love us dearly, and you will never give evil into our life without there being a better, good, and glorifying purpose behind it. So we pray that you'd secure Alan Lucy in the hope that that you are good, that you are in control, that you use agents like medicine, but you are ultimately the rescuer, the savior, the healer, and our singular um, expectation and desire and satisfaction. Lord, I thank you so much for our church family. 
Uh, it is humbling to see the faithful servants ministering to our children, uh, serving and laboring by giving the gospel to our little ones. Thank you for the testimony of Ariel today and the, just the reminder to be faithful at instructing our, our young ones. Uh, we thank you for the ministry of the FIPS as uh, it has borne fruit, and we uh, are so blessed by uh, seeing Brian and Elena's testimony and, and hearing them confirm their faith in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the precious gifts. We thank you for this church family. We thank you for the body that you've implanted us into. We ask that the gifts that the Spirit gives would be vibrant and used and minister richly among our church family. Lord, we ask for our missionaries that you would strengthen them to walk faithfully, guard their private lives so that they are pure and holy and devoted to the Lord. Uh, keep them close to you and, and strengthen their hearts and lives so that you might be able to pour out rich grace on them in their ministries and fruitfulness as they serve you. Lord, help us to love you this week, to be faithful to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.